Hey, Tim. Are we working? We're live. Okay. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and & Sons, and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is jazz alto saxophonist Tim Byrne, whose latest release, along with guitarist David Torn and percussionist Chess Smith, is Son of Goldfinger on ECM Records. Byrne is also the frontman for the jazz quintet Tim Byrne's Snake Oil, a group you should totally check out. I spoke to Byrne at his apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Tim, how's it going, man? It's going good, man. Good to see you. Good to be here. Good to be back in New York Cité. Mm-hmm. Let's get right into it. I'm going to read a little bit from a review on your album, You've Been Watching Me, on ECM. There's a moment I look forward to in every track of You've Been Watching Me. It's when the angular lines and spacious ideas gel and the quintet first merges into an oddly metered yet head-banging groove as it pushes toward the stratosphere and a cathartic finale. The anticipation of how our heroes are going to reach their improbable destination makes each whodunit all the more compelling. That's what it is with your music. I feel this sense of journey, and I don't say journey in a in a hippy dippy way, but I really can sense, even with my sometimes limited understanding of what's happening, I sense the forward propulsion and the progress, and I know when we've reached our destination, and it's still surprising that we got there. Yeah, that's good. I was about to say forward motion is the forward key. Forward motion. But it's always moving forward. Even even the, you know, with a few exceptions, most of the pieces end differently than how they start. So there's a little trip there. And you got to, when you're improvising, even though there's a lot of way more freely improvised things than you would think, transitions are everything. So getting from A to B to C to D to E even if it's all improvised, there's still a method to the madness. And one of the things I try to emphasize is, first of all, if, some, if there's an, an improv, I won't say, okay, this is a piano solo. I'll say, this is an ad lib. So immediately, like psychologically, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm not soloing. I'm improvising. Big difference. So it means if three people are playing, there's three equal. There's, you know, it's a conversation. It's not piano with a little subtext you know rhythm section it's not piano and comping yeah 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 it's just not you know you're not there aren't any accompanists really or they're all accompanists you know and every once in a while somebody jumps out and the other thing is uh i i don't like to end solos i like the 
I like things to kind of move like a relay race. You're constantly moving from one thing into the next. There's segues, there's crossfades. It's not like, okay, solo's over. That's why you never hear applause at my concerts until the, you know, the end of the song, because people don't even know if they just heard a solo or not. And things just keep moving in a more collective sense. And, and, you know, you rarely hear somebody kind of finish a solo, you know, and then there's pause and then the next solo starts. There's always this moment of uh, confusion or, or um, expression where it's like something's happening in here. I wonder what's going to emerge, you know, and sometimes it's not always going. Excitement isn't always like something louder and groovier. Sometimes it goes the other way. You know, you're kind of letting the air out of everything. And then it ends with something really, you know, peaceful or quiet or, or, um, but it's always moving. It's usually moving forward. Passages of unison, though, in in your pieces too, and I feel like unison, especially in your flavor of jazz, is a signal to our ears that these parts aren't improvised. We know that because you're playing in unison, yeah. therefore it has yeah, to yeah, be yeah, premeditated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, are, are those put in as signposts in the music? There's a stake in the ground here, and there's a stake in the ground here, and then. I mean, they're, they're signposts for us. I don't really care if they're signposts for the audience. I mean, if they work for us, they work for the audience, usually. Audience is way more generous than we are to ourselves. It's, I'm just constantly looking for contrast. So I don't want... I love when you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think all this stuff came out of going to concerts and knowing what the solo order was going to be, knowing who was going to solo when, <laughs> how they were going to stop, and what was going to happen next. And that, felt, that started to feel corny. No, just... Not what I was interested in. I think because I always felt like I was better at ideas than I was at actually playing. And so I needed the combination of the two. You know, I couldn't really rely on just playing an amazing solo and getting by on that. That could be the music. You know, every time I play, it's going to be great and blah, blah, blah. So I need ideas. I need, um, yeah, I need to shape it a little bit. You know, having these little things. Yeah, they're signposts. They're cues. A way to cue something without being obvious. You know, stuff just rolls in. The timing is always different. It doesn't always happen at the same time. It doesn't always happen at the peak. Everyone in the band has uh, influence. They, they can decide when to bring it in. Those moments are how sometimes how we transition. Sometimes it's just improvised. You know, sometimes I'll just say, okay, you know, at some point I'll just say, okay, let's roll in next group. You know, and we kind of roll in. There's some messiness, and then something else happens, and then it's like everybody knows, okay, this is where we're going. There is a you know a composed little thing that we're aiming for. You know how we get there or what we do when we get there is pretty open, unless there's something I don't like. At this stage, I don't say anything. You know, at the beginning, the first year, it was like boot camp, you know. Yeah, that transition was too long. Try not to finish your statement. Yeah, don't end it. You know, don't 
I don't want to hear an end and then the next thing. I want it all to sound like one thing and and uh, don't solo, don't do. When that. you say you know, the first year was boot camp, what 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 are you? Well, first to? year was snake oil. I should okay. say. Okay. You know, the guys were learning my language and and. I was expressing probably the only time where I'll just sort of say, yeah, that was a little long or that was a little short. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you don't have to, you can do something obvious here. Mm -hmm. Like at the beginning, what would normally happens with my bands is we play the written music. It's extremely convoluted. And we stop and then everybody just goes into rubato, <laughs> anything but what we just did. The reaction is just kind of stop and go, now what do I do? And gradually, when you internalize the written music, you start using it. Like, it's, this is these are ideas, you know, it's mm -hmm. implying you some something to do. And you start improvising almost from a composer perspective yeah, exactly, than, totally. a, than a performer. And, you know, just because the head's grooving doesn't mean the improv doesn't have to, shouldn't groove. Mm. In other words, just do the obvious sometimes. You know, sometimes that's enough. Just stay. In, what might the obvious be? I'm just give, grooving, so keep grooving, you know. Okay. You know what I mean? Don't stop. <laughs> okay. Don't be a ball stopper like right. Carmelo. Right. <laughs> I know what I can bring and I know what I, I still can do and what I still have. So my confidence from that standpoint, yeah, I always have to say, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to come off the bench. But that's kind of what it is. You know, okay. it's like you got some good ball movement and then somebody holds the ball and goes, oh boy, mm -hmm. now what am I going to do? You're digesting a ton of information and you don't, you've already done everything. So what do we do with this? So maybe you do less, maybe you do more, maybe you just do something really simple, maybe... Maybe you turn it upside maybe down. Maybe you stop playing, mm -hmm. you know. Stop playing because you're overwhelmed is different than stop playing by choice. Like, right. this is a musical decision. Right. I'm going to lay out, <laughs> you know. When you're, when you're coming up with a tune, how does that tune begin? Does it begin as a motive, as an idea? It's I'm looking for something that's provocative, that'll make you want to improvise. I'm looking for ideas... You know, I'll start out, if I'm going to write a bunch of music, usually I have, I'll sit down and go, okay, I want this one to be slow, then I want it to be dense, then I want it to be groovy, something mm -hmm. to get me started. So I know that when I start writing, I'm working on a slow thing. Then I divert from it. As soon as I get past the first day, you know, it looks like a mess, it looks like a Jackson Pollock, and then the next day, it looks more like, maybe it looks more like Picasso, and then the next day, you know, and eventually you can actually see what's going on. And do you write? Do you write on paper, yeah, or do you write, write with your paper. horn in your mouth? No, I write on paper. With, okay, but I also use the piano. I, okay. I like to get away from the horn because fall into I familiar don't, yeah, patterns. Yeah, yeah. I start writing stuff I already know, or you know, I just start throwing ideas around, and then all of a sudden it starts to become clear. And then you got to leave space for the improv. You got to leave an opening. You don't want to have it everything just sound like this is over as soon as we play the written music. It has to make you want to improvise. It has to just has to provoke something, you know. I'm just trying to generate, putting a little bit of my influence on it, my little stamp. And then after that, I want everybody's opinion. You know, I don't want to be the only voice, the voice of reason, you know. Okay, so let's let's say you write a tune for Snake Oil and you bring it to the group. By the way, tick off the, the personnel of that band. Oscar so. Noyeg, Matt Mitchell, and Chess Smith, and sometimes Ryan Ferreira on guitar. Okay, so you got... Two woodwinds, piano, drums, guitar. Yeah. So what do you come to the group well, with? Drums, vibes, timpani. Sorry, right. Yeah. So Chess Smith does a lot of lot of different percussion. What do you arrive to the group with? And then 
how does the building process continue? Well, I give them uh, nowadays. I give them the you know I give them the music before the rehearsal. Usually everybody has that together, so we go. You know, it takes about ten or fifteen minutes to get it together, the written parts. Then I might come up with a a slightly, just a little bit of an arrangement, like yeah, maybe after this part it can be piano and drums, or maybe piano percussion and piano before we play this then me and oscar bring in this and then you bring in that and then we all do this and and then maybe oscar will blow for a while and it could be with chess could be with chess and matt or matt you could lay out or check you know Mm -hmm. then it gets a little bit more like feel it out and just don't duplicate something we've already done you know so if you know if you're rocking out on the first on the intro that's it that's we're done rocking out we've got to come up with something else now you know (laughs) just contrast you know it's pretty it, it's not that different than how i thought in the late 70s when i started doing this okay so you brought up the late 70s so let's go ahead and talk about influences i'm interested in in influences for you that kind of exploded the the musical matrix for you and made you think now i have to look at different modes of thought than i've been accustomed to well i started playing music when i was 19 i started playing saxophone that was my first musical anything. So that's a that's a late yeah that's kind of late beginning. It doesn't yeah, seem yeah. that way now, but right. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's right. it's uh, the guy. I mean, a ton of guys like Roscoe Mitchell, Art Ensemble Chicago, Anthony Braxton, Cecil Taylor, Sonny Rollins, Joe Henderson. You know, blah blah blah. But the guy who just turned everything around for me was Julius Hemphill. He had something. He had all the kinds of music I like going on in one tune, practically. What What were those kinds of music? If you could soul music, them. funk, free jazz, for lack of a better word, you know, avant garde jazz, jazz, everything. Was that a wake up call to you of like, oh, I can bring in? Well, that was that was before I started playing. I okay. Then it was like I became so anxious at just being a listener. I said, oh, I got to play. I got to play. You know. And finally, out of a you know, I found a saxophone for a hundred bucks and I started playing. Then I was lucky enough. You know, I studied with Braxton for a few lessons, and then I and then he said, oh, you should call Hemphill. He's in Brooklyn. I'm I'm too busy. And I called Julius. I didn't know he was in New York. And then we started this years of kind of studying friendship whatever hanging out and that's when it all sort of happened you know? take me through a study session with julius first Hemphill. lesson i walk in his house of course he forgot i was coming you know and i walk in his house and his kids flying down the stairs and he says oh what can i do for you and i'm like you know once we he realized he was giving me a lesson he goes so what can i do for you and i said no idea i'm a beginner you know anything i don't, I don't really know i don't know what i don't know you know <laughs> So he goes, well, I've been thinking a lot about magic lately. That was it. And that was what it was like. You know, and what he was talking about, which I learned about 20 years later, is that thing that happens when you're improvising with people and you connect and you know it's going to go on for the next hour. There's nothing you can do to fuck it up, Mm -hmm. almost. You're surfing 
and you're stuck to the board. You're glued to the board. You're never going to fall. And so you just learn how to get out of the way. It's a major step to know not to do anything to fuck it up. <laughs> and that's all intuitive. It's all instinctive. Do you just learn that by doing it and knowing what that zone feels like? Well, yeah, some people learn it. I think I learned that really early on. I didn't learn it. I just knew I could recognize it. You knew it where comes from listening. You were there. You know, I was listening to a lot of music with improv, you know, really interesting improvisations and and I was listening to music that wasn't all just solo form blah blah blah, you know, and it's called people call it chemistry, but it's really just sharing the same goals, similar goals with people. So when I improvise with David and Chess, even though our gigs are all improvised, we recognize when it's when the magic is happening and we recognize that we don't all have to play the same thing at the same time to play together. We don't have to do, you know, if one guy's playing a groove, we don't have to all fall in. If you're all committed to an idea at the same time and there's three really disparate things going on, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not playing together, you know, and, and you learn how to listen and you learn how to hear the whole thing versus yourself only. And then it's just gut feelings and taste, you know. There is no explanation. That's why he's calling it magic, you know. imagine that the, the more prepared you are for a performance insofar as internalize well snake oil definitely yeah internalizing yeah. that piece and knowing the elements of it so that you're able to roll i mean with, if you're thinking you know if you're reading the music like you haven't learned it, internalized it and then you're improvising there's a step hmm. that's there that you don't want there you know and when we're improvising since we're not reading anything, the difference is the room, the sound, the audience. Those are the things that get in the way. If we're in a room and I hate my sound because I'm listening only to the monitor and the room's really dry, that's a hindrance. That's a, you know, and you have to learn how to get around that. You know, you have to kind of train yourself to imagine what it sounds like to the audience. Um, just like recording. I mean, we did this record in the studio and David and I were extremely uncomfortable with the headphone sound the whole time to the extent where we didn't even know we could sort of sense well something's happening but it didn't sound like it to us in the headphones once you you know once he mixes it and does his thing it's a whole different thing you know all of a sudden it sounds like we were on fire and we were you know couldn't have been happier in the studio so it's about learning how to cope with those situations and not just going down with the plan, you know. And you got to trust what you're doing because yeah. you can't, it can't so, be immediately verified. And right? because we've been playing together so much, that trust is there and there's a given that this is going to, this much is going to be happening. And so if you're committed and you don't panic and you don't stop playing because you can't hear, you just kind of keep plowing through it and you have chemistry, for lack of a better word, then something's going to happen. But the magic stuff, you know, that 
that's a different thing. You know, that's that shit where you just go, whoa, how did that happen? You know, like it happens at the same time. You all kind of go to something and it's like instant. And then you just try to let it, allow it to happen as long as possible. And those are decisions you're making, you know, whether they happen really fast, but the decision, when do I stop? Like, if we milk this idea, did we milk it too far? Do Are we ball stopping, you know? That's what happens. You know, every once in a while, someone will keep playing, and you go, oh, fuck, should have yeah. kept playing, or, or you know, I'll do it. I, you know, whatever, or I'll come in and ruin a moment. You know, those are decisions, and those are things that you learn from doing it, you know? It's not going to happen just because I'm playing with a guitar player. It happens because I'm playing with David, you know? It's the personalities and the mental outlook and, you know, all that stuff. All that listening, I think, prepared me, you know, listening to the art ensemble, listening to people with these incredibly composed ways of improvising, you know, where they sound like they're composing. Since we are a Steinway and Sons podcast, mm-hmm. uh, I would be remiss to not discuss this album you did with Matt Mitchell. Matt Mitchell, pianist, plays your work on solo piano. Was that music through composed or was no. it okay? It was improvised as well. So how does how does that collaboration look? Because here you are, you're writing for an instrument that you're not playing for a performance that you're not participating in as a musician, but only as a composer. What changes in that collaboration? Well, I mean, I know Matt, and I knew I, I can't say I didn't know it was going to be great, but I didn't know how great it was going to be because I just I had no idea. He, I mean, he was so focused. And and on top of the material. And I basically said, you know, the reason it's called Forage, one of the reasons I said I basically let him forage through my all my music that he had played or and decide what material to use. And then we discussed it and then we kind of honed it. We narrowed it down a little bit. And then I kind of dropped a few hints like there's some things that I've written in the past that are kind of have these implied harmonic zones. They're a little more harmony oriented not in specific ways but sound wise that i i would say you know i'm not against you playing these ballads or this tune or i threw these things out there and he accepted the challenge he was into it you know he liked these tunes and also he knew what i was getting at you know i want to see a different side of me come out get get away from the angular you know i want it to sound like you filtered through me the the angular meaning i kind of wanted him to pull out the things that were already there and that he can't do with a band because he's got to filter it through four other three or four other people in this case he had complete control over the improvising and and they were you know it was really like taking my almost like a jazz in the best sense of the word approach to my composing so I didn't want him to just, you know, make it sound like new music or complicated. I just wanted him to interpret these tunes like he would interpret a standard. And that's what he did.
So, Tim, you've been putting out records since the late 70s. And when you started, you were putting them out on your own label. Yes. And so I, started, I had this label called Empire. My teacher, Julius Hemphill, had his own label called Embari. And the record of his that was just this classic record, he put out himself. And so when I decided to record, it was never an option to record for somebody else. Didn't even cross my mind. It was like, oh, great, I'm doing a record. This is how Julius did it. It's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. So then I started my label. I had the role model because I'd helped Julius put out a record. My sister did the cover. We sort of worked on it together. I helped him sell them. So I learned that part of it, you know, distribution, whatever, how to put a cover together, where, you know, you master the record, blah, blah, blah. And so I put out, I think, five records on my own label. And in those days, you know, it was all vinyl. But it worked really well. I mean, because people were buying records and there wasn't a ton of competition in the independent record zone. I think my the first record that I did for another label, 83, with Paul Motion, Ed Schuler, and Herb Robertson. That was the first time I did anything and got paid. Somebody else put up the money. And I was like, wow. That's when I think first felt like I was actually a musician. You know, somebody else was putting up the bread. Mm. <laughs> you know, I did my first tour and, and that changed everything. But funnily enough, when I'd done that for a minute, it made me want to go back to self-producing because I saw, saw both sides. I said, okay, I'm giving up control. Graphics are different. All of a sudden, it wasn't my product. You know, it wasn't mine. And that bothered me a little bit. So at some point, I went back. You know, I sort of went back and forth. I found a German label that let me kind of do whatever I wanted. And I sort of controlled the artwork, me and Steve Byram. And we sort of took it over. And then all of a sudden, he developed an ego. And we got we, we left. And then I went back to my own label with a vengeance. Then I was like, oh, yeah, now I know why I did this. So I, you know, so I started Screwgun. And when I started Screwgun, it was sort of the peak of selling records. My original original idea was bootlegs. I was going to do my own. I was going to bootleg myself, put out live recordings. I thought, yeah, everybody loves bootlegs. So I'm going to put out these live recordings with these really funky looking covers that almost look like bootlegs on cardboard. And I'm going to sell them by mail. How could this fail? You know, I figured it out in my head. First one was a box set. We designed the whole box thing. It was totally new. And it worked like a charm. It was incredible. Then I just kept doing more. I did a Django Bates record, Mark Ducre, Formanek. And it was going great. And then the whole thing exploded in early 2000s, I think. Maybe 2003 or four. The record business started to dip. And then I started to get tired of the busy work. And so, you're, you, it should be known that you're soup to nuts with these. You, yeah, yeah, I you, do everything. You with. you mail them out. You do the yeah, postage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you you take the orders. You run the site. Yeah. Then I just wanted to get back. I was kind of tired of. I needed like to get some kind of endorsements for me to get gigs. You know, okay, I need somebody to. So then I started thinking. I think I started doing these records for Clean Feed, and it was pretty much like doing it myself, except that he financed it, and that was cool. And then the ECM, I got the ECM bug because I knew him and we'd always, you know, it was always like, hey, let's do something. And then I would never follow through. And <clears throat> finally, I got him to do Snake Oil. And I think it was a good group for him. You know, I think it had a lot of the elements that maybe he likes accidentally. 
But it gives you a certain amount of credibility. I would say more so in the States. You know, I can get certain kinds of gigs maybe that I couldn't get before. And the production values are really good. Different aesthetic, you know, in terms of the visuals. But even that, you know, uses my photos. And Tim, what do you want to do next? Well, there's something I haven't done enough of that we hint at on this new Goldfinger record is playing with strings, playing David's compositions with a string orchestra with me sort of improvising and playing with it. And there's a hint of that on the new record. And it just kind of wet my appetite. We've been talking about this for years, but of course, no money. So no. this is to... to uh, David composing for a string orchestra. David Torn. And us playing. And the album is called Son of uh, Goldfinger. Son of Goldfinger. S-U-N. Yep. That's a pun. Uh, not really. That's, that's something. It's clarification. That's something. <laughs> but yeah, that would be a something... I'm not that ambitious. I don't want to write an orchestra piece. I don't want to write for a string quartet. I did that. It was not my thing. I like playing with my band, you know. I like playing. You know, I don't want to not play. That's as good an ender yeah, right there. I like good. playing. I don't want to not play. I don't want to not play. I don't <laughs> want to not play. Yeah. I don't not want to don't want to not play. <laughs> so, like, Quintuplet negative. been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. In order, we heard clips from Lost in Reading and Small World in a Small Town from the album You've Been Watching Me by Tim Burns Snake Oil on ECM. OK Rubber Band by Julius Hemphill from the album Blue Boyer on Screwgun Records. Ora Feliz from the album Incidentals by Snake Oil on ECM. I Metal from Son of Goldfinger on ECM. Sin from Forage with Matt Mitchell playing Tim Byrne on solo piano on Screwgun Records. And then a second clip from iMetal. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>